and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Vogelman. My guest today is the lead singer of probably the most underrated band of the 80s and 90s, The Ocean Blue, lead singer David Chesel. Now, The Ocean Blue is releasing their first album in over six years called Kings and Queens, Knaves and Thieves. It's out June 21st. It's really a fantastic album. We talk about it. We also talk about how the band got signed to Sire Records when they were in high school. Now, Sire Records was the record label for The Cure, The Smiths, The Pesh Mode. So the Ocean Blue fit right in. And I discovered the Ocean Blue pretty much like most people, thanks to MTV's 120 Minutes, back when MTV was watchable. They would show videos for Drifting Falling, Between Something and Nothing, off their first album. And we also talk about how the band kept getting mistaken for being a British band and David's reaction towards that. He called me from Logan Airport in Boston. He just arrived. Uh, really nice guy. We had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it too. So when you guys were little lads back in uh, you know, Hershey, Pennsylvania, how did you first get involved in music? And like, What was like this kind of the spark that got you involved? Well, the spark was music and friendship, and um, you know, growing up in the in the '80s and late '80s, um, we connected uh, as young friends um, through music. We all really loved new wave college rock radio, and um, were learning our instruments for the first time, and really wanted to start a band. So. It was based on that friendship, which was also kind of based on music. Right. Were all you guys, like, self-taught or do you have lessons or anything like that? Um, no, we all had lessons. Okay. Um, I had about a year and a half of guitar lessons. I had a really good, actually, bluegrass teacher. I wasn't interested in bluegrass at all, but he was right. a guitar teacher that my mom knew. And, um, and then I also had a guy who taught me some jazz guitar and along with that, um, music theory, which was really helpful in understanding how to write songs and how songs worked. And uh, Steve, our keyboard player and saxophone player, was probably the most accomplished musician. He had had a lot of years of, of lessons on the saxophone and could play piano quite well. His mother was a music teacher. And uh, Bobby, I actually taught Bobby how to play guitar and bass so he uh he learned from me <laughs> for better or right. for worse <laughs> yeah so how young were you were you when you first like you know were singing and really thought you can do this as a career oh well, we yeah we were all in junior high when we started as a band um but we didn't play out until we were in high school so we had a lot of years of just practicing in each other's basements and making plans but not really doing anything until years later. Well, we were very young. I mean, we were all, I think I was 20 when we signed with Sire. Most of the guys were a little younger. Right. And yeah, so they were like still in high school. So when like Sire came, like, you know, the legendary Seymour Stein and you know, stuff like that, uh, were they, did they finish high school or did, did everyone kind of drop out? No, we, we all were able to finish high school uh, before we did our first record. And um, so we, we were all graduated from high school. Um, and actually, in between making our first few records, I continued on and went to college. So, so yeah, we, we 
we all continued and finished our education. Right. So the, the first album, which you know was still great, uh, how long did it take you to like write the songs and record the album? Yeah, so the songs on that first record I wrote pretty much when I was in high school, so in probably late middle school too. So, I mean, I think there was a good five, six-year span of writing and working on those songs with the band and refining them um, for that record, which I think made for some really good songs. But we were super green when we recorded it. We hadn't had a lot of experience in the recording studio. We're really young. I was a very undeveloped singer. And so making the record was, was a challenge, even though we worked with some fantastic producers and then some great studios. And that process, I think, lasted about five months. We did, or maybe, yeah, we did a month in December of 88 in London, and then came home for Christmas and went back and I think spent another three months, maybe two months in the recording studio and did some remixes in New York and L.A. Were you, were you guys kind of like, you know, you had to like pinch yourself? You know, you're recording an album in London. You signed to a major record. Oh, my. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still pinch myself now. 
Right. I think we had an extraordinary, extraordinary experience being on Sire Records right out of high school. Three records. I mean, it was it was extraordinary, and I I appreciate it more than ever, and I appreciated it at the time too. Um, I think there were some things I took for granted, but um, but yeah, no, we were we were extremely fortunate. Right. Yeah, you because know, you know Sire had like you know Smith, The Cure. You know, the Ramones talking head, like, you know, great artists, and I'm sure you were fans of everybody there, too. Yeah, I mean, there was hardly a band on Sire that I wasn't a fan of, and, of course, many of my favorite bands were on Sire. And then, by extension, Sire was a part of the Warner Brothers family, right. and there were other bands like New Order that I adored that were part of that. So the same people working our records early on were working, like, you know, the Smiths' new record or New Order's new record, and it was... Yeah, it was extraordinary. It was great. Were you able to like meet any of them like when you were like recording your first album or maybe second album? Um, not so much during the recording process, but over the years in between, you know, of different promotional things. Um and in, in New York, I, I was actually pretty shy about meeting people I really liked. <laughs> yeah. I was I just afraid to be disappointed or or just make a fool of myself. But um yeah, I mean, early on, we did a show with Deborah Harry of Blondie, okay. who was on the label, and David Byrne, who were both releasing solo records at the time on Sire, and got to meet them, and that was, I mean, pretty amazing. I had a huge crush growing up on Deborah Harry, and here she right. here I was doing a show with her, you know, so it was pretty cool, and she yeah. was flattering and uh, very kind to us. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So I, I first discovered you guys, I'm sure, like most, on MTV 120 Minutes. We had a couple of videos, just the falling video.
And that's actually when MTV was watchable and you could actually get music on, on there. Um, how important was like MTV, especially that show to your guys' career? Well, I think it was hugely important in that, that show in particular because it wasn't until our third record that we had sort of steady rotation and normal MTV. Um, but back then with 120 minutes, and I think there might have been something called Friday Night Videos too. I yes. mean, that's where particularly kids like us who weren't around a major market with a cool venue and a good radio station, even a college radio station, I mean, we would tune into MTV in 120 minutes in particular to see cool music and discover music. And so then to be on that uh, was extraordinary and really helpful for us. I mean, I can remember the first time I saw us on 120 minutes, we were preceded by Echo and the Bunnymen and followed by the Smiths. And okay. I was like, wow, I mean, this could not be cooler and better. And I still meet people who discovered us that way. And I guess I guess you did too, Noel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I was in college, I worked on a college radio station. I was doing uh, sports updates. And the DJ at the show that I was working on, we were, you know, we were pretty close friends. And he always let me pick a couple of, show, a couple of songs for his shows. So that was right when Beneath uh, Rhythm Sound came out. So I made sure every time I work, to play at least two songs from that album on his show. <laughs> Another radical dream Becomes a long spring Beneath the rhythm and sound Another meaning, and if you ask me today to say just what I'm thinking, you might flee my reply and run upwards and run downwards. Yeah, the, the album, album is fantastic as well. Now, with the, the fire contract, did you feel that you got everything out of it that you possibly could? Um, yes and no. I think I think we we had a chance to continue working with Sire after three records, and I, I kind of wish we had taken that chance. Um, but you know, without going into the details, we didn't, and and I'm. Um, but that was also a time when music was really changing and the industry was beginning to really change. So I think after we did those first three Sire records, 
Um, doing our fourth record proved to be a real challenge because of the changing musical environment, the changes going on in my band. Um, I love the fourth record we did, but it, you know, it didn't really get a fair shake. And I, and I felt, I feel like if we had stayed on Sire, we might've got more traction with that record. Yeah. No, that record to the ocean blue is also a uh, really, really solid album. Um, now then after that, you guys kind of went the indie route and do you feel that and eventually landing on your own uh, label, Corba, how, how difficult is it to be like on your late biggest, on your own label and kind of like the biggest challenges you face? Yeah. So it's, it's the best of labels and the worst of labels mm-hmm. to have your own label. I mean, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, but that's also, you know, part of the drawback. I mean, there was a huge infrastructure of support and um, systems in place when we were on major labels that helped us along. It could be kind of annoying and constraining at times, or you might not agree with what they did, or but you didn't have to worry about a lot. And when you are on your own label, and ours is kind of a label co-op where we all help each other out, and, but no one's really in charge. No one's really, right. you know, we don't have a massive distribution or promotion system. And so kind of up to each band on the co-op label to, to figure that out. And I know enough about how things work that it's pretty hard for me not to spend too much time on things. And, um, you know, that that's a little difficult for me. Um, and so, you know, I don't have a deadline and I'll, I'll, I'll obsess and, uh, you know, be perfectionistic about a lot of stuff that I just plain old wouldn't have time for in the past. I'd have to get it done and out. And now I can take my time with things, which is great, but also, I mean, it's been six years since we put out a record, and before that, like, ten. <laughs> yeah. So um, trying to get a little bit better with that, trying to get a little bit more consistent in the way we release things. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, that's, that's the pros and cons of having your own label. Right. And when you guys took that first long break, everyone kind of did their own thing. And you went back to school and got your degree and became a lawyer. Right. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I'm an IP, IP lawyer. Now, was that something you always wanted to do? Is that just because of the nature of the business that you kind of felt that way? Um, well, yeah. No, I, I wasn't like I wanted to be a lawyer when I grew up uh, right. as a young person. I, I, I did think that when I started in music as a teenager that it's something I'd want to get out of when I turned age 30. It's funny. I was reading some articles recently about Robert Cure. Robert Cure, Robert Smith yeah. of The Cure, you know, when he turned 30, he was doing Disintegration, and that was kind of a big record right. um, of him kind of coming to terms with turning 30 and, like, does he still want to do music and all this kind of stuff. And I could really relate to that. I mean, not that I had anything remotely like the career Robert has had, but right. know, turning 30 is a big deal for a musician, particularly when a lot of the music you like and a lot of your fans are younger and and um, so I always thought I would get out of music and do something else and go back to school or, uh, you know, I, I knew I wanted to go to grad school someday. And it just turned out that the law was something that interested me and was also very practical. And I love intellectual property and thinking about it and studying it. So that's what I did. Yeah. Right. Now, has that helped you in, like, the band's career and also the label? Um, A little bit. Not really. I mean, it. Practically speaking, I've got a. I mean, I know how contracts work. I know right. how copyright works. I know. I mean, I, I I have represented some some artists, mostly my friends, but a few right. that are just 
super huge that have helped out, and that's been been fun and helpful. And it's kept me in touch with the way the music business has changed and works. But for the most part, it's it's kind of you know two parts of who I am, I guess. Yeah, I mean, because you know, with the long break of albums, you had basically you know CD sales and I guess the dawn of you know Napster, but now everything is streaming. Um, how has that helped your guys' like careers? Well, I think it's done both. I mean, I think, you know, back to what you were asking about with Sire, we, we are super lucky that Warner Brothers and Sire built a brand awareness and a fan base for our band. I mean, having that massive uh, promotional machine and distribution machine and years of, of doing what we did means we can, you know, there's more name recognition for us than if we had just started as an indie band. Um, and the great thing is, you know, we can we can make records at a fraction of the cost of what we used to because of technology. We can distribute it at basically zero cost digitally. Right. Of course, LPs and CDs still cost money. Um, but there's ways to distribute things that you just didn't have, you know, 25 years ago or 30 years ago when we started. Um, so that's that's been kind of essential for how we do things now. Um, and frankly, we we've figured a lot of stuff out, like how to tour really efficiently. I mean, we used to have a huge crew and tour buses and all that kind of jazz. And now, you know, we fly to dates and we do them very strategically where, where we can. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's gotta be you know difficult in the fact that like, you know, you're not obviously with a major label and touring that's got to come out of your pocket, right? Uh, no, no, we, we, don't have to spend any of our own money, thankfully. That's I mean, good. it's still a it's a profitable enterprise. Right. Um, you know, I I um, each of us has a recording studio in their home, so uh, you know that's pretty decent, and so we can make our recordings for next to nothing. And you know, the only real costs we have are sort of initially making records. You know, and frankly, it's it's vinyl mostly is the most expensive right. thing that we have to make. Making CDs is almost nothing, and um, so yeah, we're we're we've got a pretty uh, lean operation. Did you ever think that vinyl would be as big as it is again today? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I mean, I frankly, I grew up after vinyl. I mean, yeah. I bought cassettes and CDs right. really. So my vinyl collection, I didn't start until the mid '90s when vinyl was like 25 cents at the at the thrift store. Right. Yeah. I I, I have a a nice collection that I, I kind of got from my mom and I still have some, but I don't, I don't have a player to play them. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I, I got to get one of those all in ones because also the cassettes, which I, I think cassettes are the worst. I hope they never come back. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So before we were talking about when you reach 30 and you, and you know, Robert Smith coming up with disintegration, um, how did your like songwriting like change as a result of like hitting you know, milestone age. Yeah, well, I just, you know, when I listen to that first record, it's I, it sounds very useful, very green right. to me. I'm, I'm writing about things that a young man or a teenager would be writing about. Um, now I feel like I'm writing about things that an older man would be thinking about and writing about. Um, so, you know, I think, the themes and topics and sort of lyricism of this record in particular is much different than preceding records. Even the one we did um, 
you know, uh, back in for the last one we did, whatever it was, six years ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I said that feels younger to me than this one. And I think my voice has really changed, too. I've, I noticed that when I go to sing some of the songs uh, from our first two records, it's like a higher register for me. It's kind of, it's more, a little more challenging to get up there, and I feel more comfortable in a lower range. Um, and um, I'm kind of less concerned about my guitar playing than I used to be. I feel like right. I'm not as good a guitar player <laughs> anymore, but that's okay. I've got a great guitar player in the band and you know, I still write a lot of stuff, yeah. but it's pretty easy to hand it off to Eddie and have him do his thing. So. Right. Yeah. How, how is the writing process for you? Is it is it difficult? Can you just sit down and write or just like an idea comes, you have to like kind of find a write, write it down or use the notes app on your phone? Yeah. I mean, the writing process is, is kind of the same. Some of the tools are different. Like I've always, after, after our first record, um, I really tended to write using uh, the recording process. The first record was all about practicing with the guys in Bobby's basement and right. hammering out songs together, you know, writing with my acoustic guitar on my bed or something like that. But after that, I tended to, and I still do write a lot by making recordings and you know, I got a multi-track cassette recorder after our first record, and I used that from the second record on to write. And now I, you know, write in Pro Tools, and yeah, I use I use uh, uh, whatever it's called, an iPhone, to oh, to make yeah. notes and uh, right. and uh, and capture ideas. But you know, the ideas come to me in the same way. I I honestly don't know how or where they come from, but it's just they do. And um, I get those kernels of ideas and thoughts and themes or melodies or pieces of music that I hear in my head that then just need to be polished up and refined and worked out in a record. Right. And when you guys first started, um, did anyone, like, were they surprised that you guys weren't British? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we were on a label with a lot of British bands. Right. We, you know, more than half of the bands I loved growing up we're British, and so it's really a part of our DNA. It's part of our sound. Um, we used to be kind of defensive about that, but now mm -hmm. I kind of own it, and I, I think, well, what's strange about that? I mean, music transcends geography. Yeah. One of our biggest fan bases is in South America. Go figure. It doesn't right. – you know, people love music. It's not really about where you're from. And there's never – there's not like a Pennsylvania sound like there is a British sound. And right. And most of the British bands I like, well, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of them were just trying to sound like American bands. So <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of like blurred lines and all that. Yeah, it's true because a lot of those bands, our biggest influences are all like Motown. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the new album, and I want to thank uh, Shan, your PR rep, for giving me a band's copy. I absolutely love it. Um, one of the songs in particular I want to ask you about because I, I – I think I know the voice, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, love doesn't make it easy on us. Who, who's the, the, the female that does the, the song with you? Love doesn't make it easy on us. Love Oh. 
Oh, okay, yeah. So there's actually two women singing with me on that, my friends uh, Allison and Charlotte, who are part of the label co-op. So Allison Laban, who also directed our video, okay. she's, she's got a band called Tipsy Panther and a band called The Star Folk, and actually she's in another band called The Owls. And um, her sister Charlotte plays with two bands on Corda, uh, the legendary Jim Reese group or Jim Reese set, and... Um, Runes of Eskery. Okay. Um, and they both have phenomenal voices, and they're both actually singing with me on that track. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic song. I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, the voices are, are beautiful. But yeah, the, the whole album is, is really fantastic. Um, so when you guys now you know, on tour, um, how do you kind of mix up the playlist? Because I'm sure fans are going to want to hear stuff from like the first couple albums, the Fire albums. Yeah, we, we really try to play something from nearly every record. Right. Um, and so we're kind of figuring out what we're going to play on, play this tour and we'll refine it as the year goes on, but um, probably play 90% of the new record, but interspersed with a lot of uh, the hits, if you will, from, right. from the records as well as some songs. We just kind of feel like playing deep, deeper cuts. Yeah. And, uh, Hopefully this makes it into the set list, but your cover of There Is, there is a Light That Never Goes Out is one of the best covers I've ever heard.
Oh gosh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Um, yeah, it's my favorite Smith song as well. Um, did you ever hear any feedback from from the band from that song? You mean for like Johnny or Morrissey? Yeah, well maybe Johnny. Um, I, don't know about Morrissey, I, but... I heard um, through through um, uh, the vice president of of Sire. I heard that mo- many years ago. I heard Morrissey right. approved. So okay. I don't I, I don't know how Johnny would feel about it or does feel about it, but. Um, and you know that was many years ago that that came out. I think back in ninety four, ninety five. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I also heard another one. It was you were at a, a radio station maybe in Seattle. You covered uh, Billy Idol's "Eyes Without a Face." Yeah, yeah. I did that on KXP actually. Um, yeah. I do used to do it just as a purely acoustic version, and right. um, we did it with full band. Actually, with Charlotte and Allison singing the you know. Gave you Sean's Bichage part. Right. Yeah, no, that, that was that was also a really, really solid uh, cover as well. Um, now, I know you, you also work with Butch Vig and like Five Billion in the Diamonds. Uh, how um, how did you get hooked up with Butch? I know he was a fan of you guys way back when. Yeah, well, Butch is kind of Butch's best friend, a uh, guy named James from, from Britain. He's a huge fan. Um and a great musical guy. And, and when Butch and James uh, started working on music together, they they went over a list of singers they wanted to ask to be a part of their project, Five Billion Diamonds. And so I was on that list, and they asked me if I would I would play. Um, and so it's a fun story, actually. They they kind of both came to one of our shows in L.A. and kind of came backstage and. I didn't, I didn't recognize Butch. Right. And I started, he, I was talking with him and he was talking to me about the record we had just released, Ultramarine. He's like, yeah, this sounds really good, really well recorded. And he's asking me all these kind of technical engineering questions. And I'm kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then my friend, who's a pretty big time rock photographer, came over and she said, David, you know that's Butch Vig. <laughs> I totally yeah. freaked out. I had no idea I was talking with Butch. But. Anyway, after that, we became fast friends and um, just love being part of that project. The the singers on that are just, oh, I, I, I'm not worthy to be a part of that group. I mean, just really good musicians, really good singers. Super fun, though. Oh, yeah, 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 David, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Don't tell yourself short. You guys are fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, Dave, uh, thanks, thanks again for a few minutes today. Um, Hopefully you guys will tour again soon because I want to. Don't be able to make the show. Ironically, I'll, I'll be in Hershey during uh, the New York show, so hopefully you'll be uh, touring again. So just to see you guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, New York is the kind of place we'll always come to, and and um, well, I know we're working on Boston. I know we'll be in Philly if you feel like taking the train yeah, down to Philly. Um, but um, but yeah, definitely. Thank you for thank you for your time and for it's been fun chatting with you. And a special thanks to David for joining me today. Go check out Kings and Queens, Knaves and Thieves out June 21st. If you want to follow the band on Twitter, they're at The Ocean Blue. Their website is theoceanblue.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the first no 19 Be sure to like the page of Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes. Check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. And I'm going to select five random reviewers to get a t-shirt featuring our new logo and if you want to purchase any merchandise featuring the new logo the store is livingmyyouth.threadless.com a new episode comes out every wednesday sometimes thursday 
and we'll see you next week.